podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Pad up. It's the Australian Cricket Podcast. And here are your hosts. Welcome to the Australian Cricket Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Mensel, a.k.a. Menners. And joining me this week, I have Paul the Summer Game Dennett. How are you, Paul? I'm happy and optimistic, Menners. Optimistic about what? Optimistic about the Australian cricket team. Excellent. I'm glad you are after the <laughs> nightmare run in South Africa. Uh, Bob's supposed to be here this week, but apparently Kiwi Bob has a meeting with his boss at the moment, so can't be at this recording. What do we think about that one? There's rumours that he's being naturalised as, as an Australian so he can go over and play for us in the fifth one day. <laughs> I don't know if Bob would be able to do that. Well, listeners, we've got a big show. We're going to cover the series in South Africa. We've got a read and react. We've got a commentator critique. And then we'll finish it all up with a bit of a chat about the Matador Cup. But let's start off with some great news. Cricket New South Wales is leading the way in a history-making announcement last week with the New South Wales Breakers, the New South Wales women's cricket team, becoming the first full-time Australian professional women's sporting team. Now all the players will be on a minimum wage of at least 35000 Australian dollars. It's a groundbreaking day in Australian sport. I think it's excellent, and people will say, well, $35,000 is not a lot, and it's not, but I think this would have been un- unthinkable 10 years ago, that the the fact that women's cricket has now risen to the point where this can be commercially viable is, is excellent. The men's state players only a generation ago were struggling on m- not much more than minimum wage, So, um, and they've, look how far they've come, so hopefully the women's game will go in the same direction. Yeah, it's just great for the game after the success of the WBBL, and let's hope it, it spreads to all the states in the country so it's not, not just the New South Wales women's team that can afford to dedicate their, their whole lives to playing this great game. Absolutely. Um, my sister played cricket when we were growing up, and she played in I the... I bet she beat you. She Well, she did. Um, she was three years younger than me, and her scores in the under-10s were vastly better than my scores had been in the under-10s. But at the time, it wasn't. She wasn't the only girl playing it, but it was definitely a novelty, and she had to play with the boys, and it was regarded as, oh wow. And the thought of her playing beyond under twelves or whatever else was just not countenanced. The fact that that is now um, no longer going to be the case because there's actually a, a women's league that people can play in uh, is wonderful. Now, some good news for Indian cricket fans with the Indian Test side now the number one side in the world. It's a shame Kiwi Bob's here, so we can't rub his nose in about the way the Kiwis are getting spanked over in India. But, Paul, I think with India at home now to test series against England and Australia, that they have a good chance to really consolidate their number one position until they have to tour and play overseas. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I've watched a bit of this India-New Zealand series, and it just underlines how difficult Australia is going to, fight, to find it when, when they go over there. New Zealand haven't actually played that bad, badly and have been hammered. Um, and I have a, a, a bit of a fear that the same thing could happen to Australia because I think that the pitches we'll get will be a lot harder. The question, though, unquestionably, India deserves to be number one because the, the rankings are impartial and, and, and away you go. But if you could find a truly neutral ground, um, so not neutral in the sense that Dubai is neutral for Pakistan, but just somewhere uh, where the conditions are kind of average, let's say, I don't know, the West Indies, and you had a World Test Championship in that neutral ground, uh, who would you think to win? I still think I'd have my money on Australia. 
Well, if, if Test cricket were played in a championship-style format, perhaps you're right, Australia would be favourites. But Australia are 4-0 down in the one-day one series against South Africa. Let me read out the results. Australia lost the first game by six wickets with 82 balls remaining. They lost the second game by a whopping 142 runs. Then South Africa won a thriller in the third ODI, winning with uh, four balls remaining and four wickets in hand. And then in the, the last and latest game, Australia was smashed again, losing by six wickets and with 87 balls remaining. It couldn't go any worse, this tour, for the Australian one-day side. But I ask you, does it really matter? Look, I think, firstly, it's great to see South Africa doing well. There was Why? Uh, because it's good for world cricket, and there was a there was some talk. <laughs> so magnanimous. <laughs> there was some talk that South Africa were on the decline, and maybe their batting isn't um, isn't how how it once was. But with looks better than ours in this. Just, just <laughs> everything looks better than ours. But with Stain looking like he's 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 coming back to his to his best, and uh, Rabada bowling well. Um, he was bowling around 150, 155 his whole spell. I mean, he's seriously quick. Yeah, I think it, what it shapes up for is this this upcoming summer in Australia we will hopefully see a really good South African side and it will be um, nice and competitive. As to does it matter, again, I think from a South African point of view, yes, it does. I think it's, it's, it's really good. It will give them confidence and, and all of those things. From an Australian point of view, no, I don't think it does matter. And that will sound to anyone who um, is neutral as though it's just a, a biased Australian talking. But if Australia had won this series 5-0, I don't think it would have mattered either. It's just uh, one of these bilateral one-day series that come and go. The Australians have picked a side that is consisting of bowlers that most of us hadn't heard of before b- before the series began, um, and they've been thrashed. And it seems like we've been sent over there for cannon fodder. I mean, as you say, it's a nothing tour. South Africa at home, so they won't want to lose. And in the end, we've lost our first one-day series against them since 2009. So I just think we're on a hiding to nothing. And if you look at some of the bowling figures, um, take these figures uh, for the series. Average of 40 and an economy rate of 7.3. Now take average of 60 and an economy rate of 6.7. And finally, average of 75 and an economy rate of 5.77. Who do you think I'm reading out? I'm not sure. Tell me. The, the, the answer, which if we'd rehearsed this, you would have said, oh, you're probably reading out Worrell and Many and Tremaine. Those were Stain, Rabada and Pretorius. So... Every bowler just about in this series has, has copped the, the, the treatment. Stain, I think, went for 96 in, in one game. So I think for um, an Australian side consisting of um, very much our mediocre bowlers, in hindsight, it was pretty um, expected that on predominantly batting-friendly pitches they were going to get hammered. Now, as against that, it must be quite frustrating for South Africans who have seen this uh, Australian side who are the world champions, the number one ranked side, come over to their country and get absolutely thrashed. And rather than any Australian saying, wow, good on South Africa, every single one of us has said, well, you know, it's just our um, reserve grade side. That's a very galling thing to do. We kind of couldn't lose. If we went over there and won, we'd say, yeah, we bet you. And we lose. Most of our best bats are there. So it's just the bowlers that aren't there. And a lot of that is a slew of injuries. I mean, Stark cut his leg open. I just think maybe they erred in taking too many inexperienced bowlers over for one tour. Tremaine, Worrell and many. It was just too much in the one squad. I would have liked to see someone with a bit more ex- experience go over. Well, uh, 
if a month ago someone had said to me, um, name who you think might be the bowlers on this on this tour, before those names, I would have said, you know, excluding injuries, you'd say that there were players like Stark, Hazelwood, Bird, Cummins, Pattinson, Coulton Isle, Siddle, Sayers, McGoffin, Paris, Faulkner, Feckety, Berendorf, Bollinger, Cutting, and even um, McDermott, who would all have been ahead of those three that you named. So it's kind of, um, you know, you could say it's Australia's E team that's over there getting thrashed. Yeah, I would have liked to have seen Kane Richardson maybe go over. He's played a few more games than these blokes. Dougie Bollinger, I know he's a blast from the past, but he's got experience in international cricket. He played a couple of years ago in the T20 side. But throwing those three inexperienced players into the you know thin air of the high veld and then in these small grounds, they were just you know sitting ducks to get for the South African batsman. I think, to be honest, I think even if Stark had gone over there, he may well have got hammered, just like just like Stain did. I I certainly think Kane Richardson would have got hammered. Um, I hope I'm proven wrong, but I've never rated him all that highly. I think that he's um, uh, doesn't do enough with the ball, isn't an accurate, isn't accurate enough, and is just um, you know a decent bowler, but not an international standard bowler. I wonder if this series loss is going to add any fuel to the argument about the Warner v Smith debate in captaining the limited overs formats. You know, Warner was captain of the side where we beat Sri Lanka. 4-1 and won the T20 series in Sri Lanka. Now Smith's come back, the side's struggling. I wonder if that if there's going to be any more talk about those two splitting the captaincy. No, um, I can't see that happening. Um, I, I know you're talking about it, and um, we've talked about it in previous podcasts, but personally I'd be amazed if Smith, aside from injury or something dramatic happening, wasn't captain through to the next World Cup. My only observation with Steve Smith is, and I, look, I love the guy, I'm an unabashed Smith admirer that he is a little bit tight at the moment he seems to be I wouldn't say succumbing to the pressure but it does seem to be the burden of captaincy does seem to be weighing on him more than perhaps I thought it might before he took the captaincy over and I just wonder if he needs to develop a little bit more and just loosen up a bit when he's uh, leading the side, he he does seem quite tense, even in press conferences after the game. Just he, I don't know if he's he's relaxed enough in the role at the moment. Yeah, it's, it would be hard though when you're getting beaten. Um, I think that Alan Border certainly wasn't relaxed when he was getting beaten in those early days. Steve Waugh wasn't especially a relaxed captain when Australia lost. Taylor was much more more likely to take a defeat in 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 good humour. But I just more mean his general character that. He can't. He maybe has to learn to measure out his intensity because he's, he's he's we rely on him so much with the bat, but you know I think the captaincy might be draining him a little bit at the moment. Well, apart from the hundred that he scored, um, he, he hasn't been as consistent with the bat, and that's probably gone back a little while now. He certainly tapered off from the amazing form that he was in uh, a year a year or so ago. Although he's still ranked the number one Test batsman in the world, I believe. Final word on this for th- that I'd like to say is that any South Africans who are listening and thinking, God, you know. Just accept that you got beaten 4-0 and thrashed. Neil Manthorpe, the commentator from South Africa, tweeted last night, Bloody hell, this is a rout. Guess South Africa's reserve bowling attack is a bit better than the Aussies. Abbott, 4 for 26. Shamsi, 3 for 19. Australia, 8 for 121. Making the point that in the fourth one day, the, the top South Africans did sit out and they still hammered Australia. As I said, I think Australia's side is far from our reserve side, but still, I think it's, um, it's a point worth making. So I guess this one-day series is very forgettable for Australian fans, but will there be some carryover from this series into the imminent test series on Australian soil starting early next month? Will this have any effect on either side, Paul? I don't think so. I think that the conditions, under test match conditions in Australia, will be 
uh, pretty signif- significantly different. The personnel will be quite different as well. And I think that as long as Stark is back to full fitness and, and Hazelwood uh, firing, that Australia will present a very different proposition. Yeah, I'm not sure Stark's going to be back to full fitness for the first test, but what I'm worried about is the South African bowling looks pretty good. With Stane and Rabada opening up, you, when you think they'll be playing at the Wacker and at Adelaide under lights, they'll be a real handful for our top order. As they should be, and hopefully we get some pitches that are really um, slightly in favour of the bowlers and so that both sides can really go at each other hammer and tongs and we could see it. You know, it's quite possible that we could see one of the better test series for a long time. So this series concludes this week with the fifth one day. Hopefully Australia can win that game and leave South Africa without a 5-0 whitewash. That would be too much, even for me. Well, Paul, I've got some exciting news about the podcast. I've got a promotion for this summer. Now, I've got some Australian cricket podcast mugs made, and I'm doing a giveaway. So if you... Go on and review the podcast on iTunes or whatever app you listen to the show. Every week, I'm going to select one review. I'm just going to pick the names out of a hat. And if you're the only person to leave a review that week, then you get a mug. So go on to an iTunes store or whatever app you listen to the show on and review the show. And shoot me an email at ozcricketpod at gmail.com because I need to know where the review is. So specify what iTunes store you're leaving the review because they have a different one for each, each country and I can't check every country. And You know, if you're living in some exotic location, I'd love to get a review in, you know, some Mozambique or some ex- extremely rare iTunes store. But you go online, leave a review. I will give a, be giving away a mug each week for a lucky listener. And also we're on the Patreon site. And if you go and subscribe to the show for over $5 a month, $5 a month or over, I'll also send you a mug. So please go on to the Patreon site and leave, and subscribe there and you'll get a mug. One other thing just to confirm on that, Oz is AUS, not OZ. So for yep. the email address, it's auscricketpod at gmail.com. So leave some reviews and... Uh, Looking forward to giving some mugs away to the lucky listeners. And thank you to David who sent a lovely email. He said he loved the pod and he's from a he's a POM in Manila. So we do have some exotic locations. People are listening to the show. Have you seen any Australians um, wandering around in just their budgie smugglers? Um. <laughs> <laughs> if so, call the consulate. Now let's move on, Paul, to the next segment in this week's show. We have Read and React. Now, for this week's segment, I've I've chosen an article from John Pirrick of The Age, and the the title is A Balls Up, Sheffield Shield Emerges as a Cricket Battleground. Now, it's good you're here, Paul, because we've got some differing views on the way uh, we think domestic cricket should be structured. Um, Now, he brings up the point here that uh, the players are unhappy that the Sheffield Shield is being used as a testing ground for new balls in terms of this year they're going to use three different balls, the regular red kookaburra, the pink kookaburra, and then the duke ball, and uh, that it's not good for the local players. What do you think? Well, I think if you're in terms of our differing opinions, it, it's probably characterised by your thinking the Sheffield Shield is a, a very worthy competition in its own right, and its number one job is to see which state is producing the best cricketers, and its number two job is to produce Australian cricketers. I would probably flip those two around. That uh, I think we see each other's point of view, but we probably slightly vary the priorities. 
I think it's good that an article like this has been written because it would stop Cricket Australia. It, it, there needs to be the voice that says to Cricket Australia, hey, you have done a lot of things to the Sheffield Shield. Don't go crazy. You've changed the venues so many times. We've been, you know, 20 years ago, every New South Wales game pretty much was at the SCG. The Shield was all throughout the summer and then there was the final and that was it. Now they've been playing games in the Red Centre. They've been playing games in New Zealand, playing regularly games outside of the, the main cities. With the Big Bash, the um, the Shield starts the season, then goes into a massive hiatus and then reappears. Now that they're experimenting with uh, day-night games and different balls, if I was a player, I'd say, hey, uh, ultimately, this is this has to be a genuine competition, and I'd be really happy that an article like this had been written. I don't think that it's gone too far yet, but I think that it's kind of getting to the border where it would be getting too far. Look, I can see why the players think the sanctity of first-class cricket is being eroded, to take a direct quote from this article. But this is what I think worries me the most, at your point. This is Cricket Australia. This is what John's written. Cricket Australia does not concur with concerns about the types of balls used, arguing its, its, its interest is in having batsmen and bowlers ready to adapt to whatever conditions are being offered away from home shores. My argument against that is I just don't know if this is effective. I mean, we've never used the Duke ball here before, but from all reports, it doesn't travel well. So using the Duke ball here is going to be totally different to using the Duke ball in England. So I'm just not sure whether it's actually going to translate. But I guess devil's advocate, I mean, if we didn't use the first-class comp to trial the pink ball, maybe we wouldn't be seeing this rapid growth in day-night test cricket. So there is a double-edged sword to the argument. Yeah, I think there is, and I think they've just got to get the balance right. I don't think that using the different ball is too much of a problem. I take your point that it may not be the, the the panacea that people might think it will be and that we could use the Duke ball out here in the Shield and still go to England and find that with Jimmy Anderson seeming it everywhere on, on, on their conditions that we still can't handle it. But we've got to try. And I think that having a different ball, three different balls used throughout the summer isn't ideal, but I think that players could adapt to that and say, well, it's still on the given day, it's still bat versus ball, and it's still that's not going too far. But if they took it to the next step and started manufacturing things further and further eroding the, the shield away, then I'd have a problem with it. I think at this stage, they haven't gone too far yet. And this article also brings up the split fixturing of the Sheffield Shield, where they have a block of games at the beginning of the summer before the Big Bash starts, and then a block at the end after the Big Bash starts. And I actually really like the way they're doing that, because it does mirror international cricket, where you do tend to play the test matches in a block now, you and then you move on to the next format. So I actually think that way of doing it does prepare the first-class players for um, you know, playing a block of test cricket and then you move on to the next format. So I think that actually is an effective preparation. Absolutely. And I think they had no choice because in order to have a viable Big Bash, which is ultimately the best thing I think that's happened to Australian cricket in a long time because it's getting the younger generation interested in the sport and it, it's been a phenomenal success, you couldn't have that with the Sheffield Shield running at the same time. That would have ruined the integrity of the Sheffield Shield when you'd have many, many players then not playing. It would have become a glorified second 11s tournament. So I think the fact that they bit the bullet, split the Shield up, changed it after um, it had been run the same way for well over a century is to their credit. And um, it's something that countries like England are still struggling with to find a way. We've done it. We've made the change and it's worked. In an ideal world with 1950s nostalgia glasses on, it wouldn't have happened that way. But um, I think this is a very good compromise. I agree. Very good article there from John Pirrick from The Age. Very informative. Now, the segment that has been making waves in Australian cricket broadcasting, Paul, the commentator critique. 
the Channel 9 are running scared. There's been articles that Cricket Australia are putting pressure on Channel 9 to make changes after the success of this segment and the acerbic criticism doled out by some of the panellists. But before we get into the critique, the subjects for the critique this week, some, some sad news and probably a, a cricketer that we both grew up admiring and listening to a lot, Max Tangles Walker passed away. I just remember him as being such an, in, in, had to, having such inf, infectious joy for the game of cricket and just a sad loss for Australian cricket. Yeah, absolutely. Um, people of, of our generation only knew him as a commentator um, and he made more of an impact as a commentator, as a TV host, as a speaker and as an author than he did on the cricket field. But that shouldn't diminish his achievements on the cricket field because his record is very good. He had a, a bowling average in test cricket of 27 and a batting average of 19. Now, those numbers are very, very respectable and would stack up against all but the very, very best. So uh, I believe the generation before us in the backyard, everyone was imitating his um, peculiar action where he almost bowled off the wrong foot and almost looked like he was going to smack his, head, his arm into the back of his head as he bowled each ball. But yeah, it's very sad and... In the, the late 80s, the, throughout the 90s, he was a, a ubiquitous presence on Australian television, a smiling, laughing, fun sort of guy. And I think oh, everyone feels a little bit older when someone like that dies. Yeah, and I just remember as a kid, he was someone who really loved listening to, he used to tell great stories about the game. You know, he, he was such a good storyteller and that really is such a, a great way of spreading the love of the game, you know, bringing kids in through those funny stories. Just, just a great man, great loss. Now, let's get on to some current crop of commentators in the firing line. We've, I want to get your thoughts on Mitchell Johnson in the Matador Cup. I've been listening to him up there, and my thing is with him, he blatantly says he's going for the Whackers or the Western Australians when they're playing, and he doesn't really try and be neutral. I'm wondering, Paul, do you think commentators, especially if they're still playing like Mitchell Johnson is playing in the Big Bath, do you think they have to pretend to be neutral or they should just lay it on the table that, look, some of these are my mates in the Western Australian team, I'm a Western Australian player, I'm supporting them even though I'm commentating? What do you think about that? I think it's fine to be, if you genuinely are passionate about one side winning, if you want to suppress that and be completely neutral, that's fine. Or the, the Ian Smith way of doing it is fine as well, where it's clear Ian Smith wants New Zealand to win. That never stops him congratulating an opponent or criticising New Zealand. And I think that adds to his commentary. The only thing I don't like is when commentators pretend to be enthused about a certain side. Now, I haven't heard Mitchell Johnson commentate yet because I haven't watched any of the Matador Cup yet. I hope if he genuinely is interested in the Western Australians winning, I, ho I would hate for him to feel as though he's got to pretend that he cares who wins these games. No, no, I think it's a genuine thing. And I, I agree with you. I don't think players or commentators need to fake being neutral if they're not. I actually like to see a more genuine approach to commentating. I know a journalist, a true journalist should be neutral. A true broadcaster in the most classical sense should be neutral. But now we're moving away from that with the way commentating is changing. And you want people to bring their character to it. You don't want two or three guys sitting up there all being neutral and all saying the same thing. So I don't mind a little bit of character coming into the commentary box. Yeah, and it means that when they do say something against their own side, it kind of adds weight to it. When... Um when Ian Smith speaks in admiration about the Australian side, it kind of means more because you know that it's almost said a little bit begrudgingly and it kind of adds to that. I think a lot of um, overseas listeners, when they first hear Australian commentators 
like Ian Healy and others probably think they're probably a little bit too biased to, um, in the opposite way uh, towards Australia. I think that's what other people feel. Same Bob's not here to throw his opinion in <laughs> for this one. Well, let's get into the commentary critique this week. We've got five commentators and I've picked a few from the South African tour. But let's start with Mark Nicholas. Now, I'm not sure we've covered Mark Nicholas in the commentary critique so far. I'm going to say that Mark Nicholas is looking better than he used to against the team that's around him. When he came in, I thought he was pretty ordinary. But now I think he's actually one of the more professional and engaging commentators within the context of the Channel 9 box. Well, firstly, in terms of looking better, he is looking sensational. I mean, I saw him in person... uh, I went to the the, the, the screening of. You having a midlife crisis after <laughs> Max Walker passed away? I'm going to tell your wife just to watch out. I, I saw a screening of uh, Death of a Gentleman, the cricket movie, a year ago, and he was at it. And um, handsome devil. Jesus, oh, handsome, and he's 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 not he's not young either. You got a man crush? No, well, he just. I mean, he, he looks. Admit it, you do. He's he's about 55. He looks more like early 40s. Um, look, I've always liked him, and I know a lot of my friends. Um, uh, Patrick, who comes on on this show occasionally, they can't stand him. They think that he uh, is overly hyping everything and that he's just he's just annoying. I don't think so. I think he's an excellent broadcaster, and I think he's what Channel Nine needs as the host. Uh, he's uh, well spoken. He's entertaining, and he probably does go maximum uh, a little bit too often. Uh, but I think that's kind of the way it is with with free to air broadcasting. The thing I like about him is that he is willing to be authentic as well. And we're coming. We're going to talk about Jeff Lawson next. And one of my favourite scenes was once where Jeff Lawson, covering the game for ABC, happened to step into Channel Nine shot um, while they were doing the pitch report. And I think any other host would have said, "Okay, cut, uh, Jeff. Can you not walk into our pitch report?" Instead, Mark Nichols goes, no, "Jeff Lawson from ABC. What do you think about the pitch?" And Lawson got a bit of a surprise and then gave his opinion. And I, I found that really captivating. That suddenly the ABC man was broadcasting on Channel 9 because I think Nicholas, with an eye for good television, had seen it and said, let's see what happens. So I quite like him. Yeah, he's a true professional, Nicholas. I agree with you. It just sometimes goes on a bit too much. But let's talk about Jeff Lawson, ABC radio commentator, former Australian player, former New South Wales skipper. I love Jeff Lawson's commentary because he sees the game uniquely. He's not afraid to think of the game outside the box. How do you feel? Yeah, I really like him. He's one of those commentators that, if he was in the box commentating a game, I'd uh, and and I was watching it on delay and often fast forward between the balls to to get back to live. I'd be tempted to stop and actually watch the in between the balls just to hear what he had to say. There aren't many commentators that I'd go that far for. I, I find him interesting, and I, I also like the fact that he genuinely loves the game. That he's the kind of guy that what did you do last night? Oh, well, India versus Zimbabwe was on, and I watched that till five in the morning, which I don't think you'd get from a lot of them. Now let's move over to South Africa to the, some South African commentators over there because we've been listening to a fair few South African accents from South Africa, of course. Let's start with Mike Hazeman, used to play in Australia, went on the South African Rebel Tours, now commentates in South Africa all the time. What do you think of Mike Hazeman? Well, I think that I think we might have we might have mentioned him before, but the fact that he's got a uh, a South Australian accent with all of its uh, lovely idiosyncrasies that has now been melded with the South African accent. So I think it's a unique accent around the world. So I, I can spot his voice within about a syllable because of that. Look, I, I find him um, perfectly acceptable. Doesn't really get me to extremes either way. I can take him or leave him. I think he's, he's a true professional, he's, though. Yeah, he's fine. He's a really good broadcaster. Now to a former player commentating Sean Pollock. I'm going to go straight off. I really like Sean Pollock. I think he mixes some sort of light, 
humour with some serious analysis. And I think Sean Pollock's a really good commentator. I, I like him as well. Um, I don't like him as much as Lawson to the extent where I wouldn't probably go out of my way to listen to him, but I would never sort of turn him off either. I think he's quite good. Um, I like how Stephen Fry once sent a tweet after he'd been watching some of the South African cricket that, to the effect of that he thought that they were referring to harlots and then he realised that it was Sean Pollock talking about the highlights. Um, he does have a very unique way of saying that vowel sound. That's a wad. Um, other than that, um, I, th- I find him quite good. Now, I've got a bit of bias for the next commentator, but I really cannot stand this bloke, Kepler Vessels. I find his commentary pretty insufferable. It's just terrible. And I just don't like him. I've never liked him since he came back playing for South Africa. And I find his commentary, he's just way too dry and serious. Yeah, Kepler's not for me. You much preferred his entertaining batting. Oh, God, yeah. (laughs) He commentates the way he used to bat. You're right. I like Kepler. Um, and I, I didn't like him as a player. The first game of cricket I ever went to, it was January 1985, and Kepler Vessels was playing for Australia, and I think he scored 50 off, uh, God knows, 130 balls or something. And I remember at the time, my dad... Probably 230 balls. My dad, who was passionately wanting Australia to win, just wanted Vessels to get out because um, he, was, he was losing the game for us. I, I, I admire Vessels. I think that some of those runs he scored in the 80s against the West Indies were really brutally tough runs. Um, Do we have to suffer through his commentary, though? I find him okay. Um, and I, he's, he's a boxer now as well. He's, he's well into his 50s. One day, one day he turned up to commentary with a broken nose because some 18-year-old had smacked him in the head. And he, he just seems to me like a really strong man um, and intelligent, and I quite enjoy him. Um, you Do know, you want to have a beer with him, Brayshaw, yeah, Ramiz I'd Raja? A, I'd love to have a beer with Ramiz Raja. <laughs> <laughs> Well, listeners, that was the commentary critique this week. Now, if you want to get in touch with the Australian Cricket Podcast, we're on Gmail, AusCricketPod, AUS Cricket Pod. We're also on Twitter at AusCricketPod, AUS Cricket Pod. You can find us on Facebook as the Australian Cricket Podcast. Please rate the show on iTunes, leave a review, send me an email. This mug promotion is going to go off. Uh, some great quality mugs coming to you. Uh, and, and if you look, if you whatever app you listen to the show, rate the show, send me an email. You'll go in the draw for a Australian Cricket Podcast mug. Eight down for 229. And New Zealand's only hope now is a six off the last ball for a tie. Well... It looks to me as if they're going to bow underarm off the last ball. Rod Marsh is saying no, mate, but I'm sure he's going to bow an underarm delivery from the last ball and bow it along the ground and be sure that it has not been hit for six. The umpires have been told, the batsmen have been told, and this is possibly a little bit disappointing. Welcome back to the Australian Cricket Podcast. I'm here with Paul, the summer game, Dennett. How are you, Paul? Yeah, good, mate. Hanging in there. Do you remember good fond memories of the underarm incident? I was too young. I'm, I'm delighted to say to remember it. I was, um, this well, would have played much better, by the way, if Bob was here. I was going to say honest. the same thing. <laughs> it would have played much better. But the reason I played the underarm is not to give Bob shit because he's not here, but because of the cricketing dynasty that the Chapels were. You know, you had Ian Chapel in the commentary box in that instant. You had Greg Chapel, the captain, and you had obviously Trevor Chapel underarming the ball. But we seem to be having a new cricketing dynasty 
with uh, Austin Waugh bursting onto the scene. He's Steve Waugh's son. He scored an unbeaten century in the Under-17 Championship Final. He's now been drafted into the Under-19 CA11 side. We have a future. I was watching Austin Waugh, the highlights of him batting. He bats a lot like his old man Steve used to bat. And I'm telling you, mark this one down. He's going to play Test Cricket for Australia. Well, firstly, on the dynasty, I, I think we should um, acknowledge that under South Australian law, you ha- you were obliged to mention that Victor Richardson, the grandfather, was part of that dynasty as well. Um, so yeah, you- I, was, I pulled up a photo of Vic Richardson on the weekend, and it's amazing how much Ian Chappell looks like Victor Richardson. I mean, yes, you could almost... You could almost say it was Ian Chappell if you, know, if you could, you know, the photo wasn't so old. And they were similar blokes as well. I think Victor Richardson uh, disliked Don Bradman as much as Ian Chappell disliked Steve Waugh, the man whose son we're talking about. I saw Austin Waugh as a four or five-year-old on the SCG after play one day when, I think Channel 9 must have been showing it, that Steve Waugh was just throwing a ball to him that was bouncing three or four times. And a normal four-year-old, I think, would, would barely have been able to make contact. Austin Wall was hitting them into the stratosphere. And I remember at the time thinking, wow. It's like when you were playing your sister, isn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, he, he plays like his dad. He's got a wiry f- physique. He's got the slog sweep. He's got the slash outside off stump. Uh, he seems to have his dad's mannerisms. And why wouldn't you? I mean, can you have a better mentor to your confident, your closest confident, your dad, is Steve Waugh. I mean, wh- how good is that? And if you're ever getting a little bit too serious, you spend a bit of time with Uncle Mark and he'd take you out to the races and just calm things down and give you that um, a, a little bit of another... Do you think he sees Uncle Mark? <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe not. Um, look, I think that the, the, the signs are great, but the only thing you'd have to say is that just purely on statistics, the odds are he won't make it um, because it's, it's bloody hard to make it to the Australian side. And Don't be a wet blanket. No, I'm just saying, talk about the convergence to the mean, um, that I think that um, an, an outlier generally... You know, if you're six foot eight, your son will be tall, but he probably won't be six foot eight. Um, that's the the statistical reality of it. Just to, to really, this must be a fair bit of genetic talent, hand eye coordination in that family, and I, I just think Austin's got it. Oh, look, there's every chance he'll be a success, and I hope uh, if he became as uh, an Australian player, I'd, I'd love watching him play. It would remind me of my youth watching Steve Waugh play, but. When the War Brothers were going, there was talk that the fourth brother, Danny, was going to be better than them all. When Ian and Greg Chappell were playing for South Australia and um, Australia, Trevor was breaking all of the records that they set as schoolboys in, um, in Adelaide. And Trevor didn't have any sort of significant Australian career. Danny Moore never played beyond first grade. It's a hard thing to play for Australia. So Austin Moore doing brilliantly. I hope he, um, you know, I hope he really succeeds. I'm just saying mathematically the odds are that he won't. The one thing that could be a negative is the extra attention put on him because he's Steve Ward's son. Now, already this, just the fact that he's Steve Ward's son and scored 100 in that final has made headlines around the world. You know, if that was you or I's son, it probably wouldn't make the same headlines. Uh, but because it's Steve Ward's son, there's extra pressure on him now to succeed. I guess the counter to that is Steve Waugh is the perfect person to sort of uh, insulate him from that. Yeah, who knows? I mean, it would depend on... I find that hard to quantify because by the same token, maybe there's a, a, there'll be an instance where he might have been the last person on the cusp of selection for a, a side and they thought, well, 50-50 call, you'll go with Steve Waugh's son. There could be benefits to it as well and... Ultimately, if you are going to make I bet it... he's popular with his teammates, though, old Austin. You know, let's go to the cricket with your old man one day. I did see Steve at the cricket with Austin and a few mates, and I'm thinking, God, you'd, be, you'd love to be in Austin's team. Absolutely, yeah. 
Oh, look, I, it'd be wonderful if he, if he made it and played just like um, just well, like his dad. Like did. you, Paul, I'm an unabashed Steve War fan, and if Austin makes it to the Aussie team, I'm in Team War again. Yes, it'd be Team great. War's back. <laughs> now let's move on to the domestic scene, the Matador Cup, the Matador Barbecue Cup, as it has been clearly called in the commentary. Now is underway. We've already had a tie, a hat trick, a one run win. The CA11 almost chased down. 328 versus New South Wales. So the competition is fully underway. But for Australian team interests, I guess good and bad news, Paddy Cummins is back playing for New South Wales. So, you know, he might play a few games for Australia again one day. And But unfortunately, Stephen O'Keefe is injured. Um, so that's a bit of a shame. But we only really need Stephen O'Keefe for India next year, would you think? Oh, do we need it for India next year so badly? The 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 need for a left arm orthodox spinner like him in Indian conditions is is massive. And so, um, if he doesn't recover from his injury, I'd say we need to get Brad Hogg on the side um, to to the tour of India, even though he'd be rising fifty. Hogger, Hogger, <laughs> wow, that's from left field. That one. I should have had that was that was a joke. <laughs> Good, but pa- yeah, Paddy Cummins is playing, which is great. Shaw Marsh, Hazelwood, and Siddle might feature during the tournament. Uh, they all need to get some cricket under their belt before the summer gets fully underway. Now, there's been a, a conclusion to the Glenn Maxwell saga. Don't worry, Paul. Glenn will not be sleeping on your couch this summer. Your wife doesn't have to worry about feeding Glenn Maxwell as well as you. He's staying in Victoria, and this was his quote. I was looking for a change of scenery and a fresh start. New South Wales were kind enough to offer that to me. Unfortunately, the timing wasn't quite right. And then he tells the age that it was probably a stuff up on our behalf, me, my management and Cricket Australia. They were happy for me to move. It was a good option. Unfortunately, it was just bad timing. So Maxie's back playing Victoria. And I think I've got some source for the reason he's upset is Marcus Harris, the young left-handed batsman, has moved from WA to Victoria. And he's now batting at the top of the order for Victoria. And I think Glenn Maxwell wanted to open the batting in one-day cricket after his success in that T20 game over in uh, Sri Lanka. But the fact that they've drafted in someone from interstate has probably pissed him off. And he's like, well, I'm going to pack up my kit bag and head north. Well, maybe. I mean, they should open with him in, in, in one-day cricket. They're mad if they don't. I mean, you can see how he feels. You've been a Victorian player for forever, and then some guy comes in and leapfrogs you up to the top of the order. If that's the reason, yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting that he's um, just calmly saying that it's, it was a stuff-up from Cricket Australia. I wonder how happy they are hearing that. Oh, I think they, there was a stuff-up because someone leaked it, obviously. Somehow it's got out somewhere and it shouldn't have. Well, it may well have been a stuff-up, but still, if uh, you know, if I was an employer and my employee was saying um, publicly that I had stuffed up, I would probably wish, prefer that they hadn't. And New South Wales are the defending champs this year. They have a very strong squad in the Matador Cup, um, but they don't have the Australian players like they did last year. The, the one thing that is really doubtful now is Mitchie Stark might not be back for that first test. He's, that injury could be worse than we first thought, so I'm not sure he'll play against South Africa, which is a shame. Well, Maka, on the, an earlier podcast a couple of weeks ago, spoke correctly and very angrily about someone needs to be held accountable for that. You can't have a, 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 any player injured because, because of such they a stump. ran into up. a stump that was sitting in the middle of the field. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's B-grade. McGrath in 2005, stepping on a ball was B-grade as well um, and not being um, available for the test match. That cost us the Ashes. 
no one at the time, me included, thought anything of it. It's just like oh, one of these things. But really, if you're at a very professional level, you shouldn't have balls and stumps no, lying no, around. No, not, it shouldn't have happened. A couple of other players to watch in the Mandor Cup. Cameron Boyce is playing for Tasmania this year after moving from Queensland. So interesting to see how the young leg spinner goes for Tasmania. And also, I'm really looking forward to... Jake Doran, who moved from New South Wales to Tasmania before last season, had a pretty quiet year last year, but now he's got a lot more experience, one of the most talented batsmen in the Australian ranks. So it'd be interesting to see how he goes for Tassie. And also, um, do you remember that bloke Ashton Ager who played in the Ashes a couple of years ago? <laughs> Top order batsman masquerading as a spinner. Well, his younger brother, Wes Agar, is playing for South Australia in the Matador Cup. He's a big, tall, quick bowler. Gets a lot of bounce out of the pitch, and he's certainly someone to watch. That was one of the... Uh, I think I've mentioned this before, but I was at that test match when Ashton Agar scored that 98, and it was just about the most enjoyable test match I've ever been to. Trent Bridge was just so wonderful. And when he smoked the ball on 98, I remember instantaneously thinking, what an amazing 100, and then suddenly saw Graham Swan catch it on the boundary right in front of me. It was, uh, it was very devastatingly sad at, the, at that time. Well, I also want to make a special mention for Chris Rogers, who retired from first-class cricket last week, finished up his career. He finished with 25,470 first-class runs, 76 first-class centuries, and in his last first-class game scored twin centuries. Can't go out more on top than that, can you? No, and I still maintain that that he seemed to retire a year early from the Test cricket. I think that... Um, he could still be playing at the highest level, given he had to wait for so long. Um, I thought it was a peculiar decision to retire and then to continue playing county cricket. But good luck to him. I think he's going to have a, a career as a commentator. And for someone who looked like he was never going to get a second test match, he had a, a late uh, second blossoming and he's had a fine career. Better to go a year too early than a year too late. True, true, true. Now, uh, before we end this show this week, Paul, there's some some big news in day-night tests this week. We are seeing the second ever day-night test. It's going to feature in Dubai, Pakistan v the West Indies. Huge for cricket. to Not only to, to move from playing day-night tests in Australia now to try one in the Middle East with this new pink kookaburra ball with the darker seam. A groundbreaking week for international cricket and a perfect test ground for it. Pakistan v West Indies, two teams that really need to enliven their test game. This could be the way forward. I Absolutely. And I think it's a wonderful experiment. Whenever I've watched cricket in Dubai, the crowds almost always are zero. And the reason given is that the expat workers from the subcontinent are, are at work. And so they just can't go um, to the games. The, there's talk that if the games were played at night, they would come. Hopefully, that therefore, we do see some um, decent crowds turning up and hopefully they produce a wicket that isn't so flat and boring that the runs scored are two and a half and over. They need to have a bit of bounce and a bit of life to make it a spectacle. And also there was an announcement that they'll be playing a day-night test in England next summer against the West Indies at Edgbaston in August in England next year. So we're going to see a day-night test in Dubai. We're going to see two more in Australia this summer. And then we're going to see one in England next year. So we'll certainly see some growth in day-night test cricket, which is great to see. And a lot of English people have said that they... They like the idea of day-night cricket in the right venues, and they I've generally seen the opinion that England is not the right venue, and they think that for a variety of reasons they, they shouldn't be playing day-night test matches well, there. It doesn't even get dark there until about 10 o'clock in summer, so I don't know how that's going to play. That's true, but I don't think that matters that much. I mean, I think that... But then couldn't they just play with, like, the red ball? Well, maybe, but I suppose 
Um, if it did get dark, then the, the lights would come. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it, by 10 o'clock it is usually... But August as well, it's starting to get a little bit darker earlier there. Um, I, think it's a good, I, I think it's a good experiment because just generally it, it allows more people to watch it. If you're a cricket fan in England and you're at work, you can't watch that day-night test match on the week... That, that test match had it been played in the day on the weekdays. Ratings for television are always higher at night, so give it a go. If it fails, then pull back, but could succeed and it could become um, a part of the English summer. And I'm not averse to having um, Ashes Day-Night Tests in England as well. Um, it would be hard work for an Australian watching on TV here. You'd be, um, it'd be starting at about 11 o'clock and going through till 6am. But other than that, I think it, it could be fun. Well, Paul, big, big waves in international cricket this week. Another Day-Night Test. I'm certainly going to be watching that. It should be more entertaining than the South African one-day series we've just seen. Thanks for coming on the podcast this week. Uh, listeners, thanks for downloading the show. Uh, don't forget to leave a review. Sign up to the show on Patreon. Send me an email. Got a great promotion with the mugs happening. And, Paul, uh, we'll be back next week with another show. We're going to have some big guests coming up. So tune in to the Australian Cricket Podcast. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Menace. What a marvellous stroke. He's played no better shot than that in the whole of the series. Podcast Network.